Folks, a formal welcome, a formal welcome, a good evening, and welcome to Torah Studies. So, we have a powerful class tonight, and the class is actually on the topic of tears, the topic of crying. So, before we get into the immediate topic and to the Torah portion, which is Vayigash, the second to last of the book of Genesis, let's talk about what we call Inyani Deyoyma. That's how we would pronounce it in yeshiva. Inyani deyoma, which means inyane deyoma, which I don't know if that helps, but, but what, that, what that means, what I'm trying to say is timely matters, matters that pertain to the yom, to the day, or the days that we find ourselves in. What I mean specifically is we are getting ready for the secular new year. Now, of course, Jews, we have our own new year, which is Rosh Hashanah, and, um, and that's obviously a special day, a holiday, high holiday, wonderful. However, at the same time, at the same time, we do understand that there is significance to all calendars. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, there's even a story of the Lubavitcher Rebbe who once wished someone Happy New Year, right around January 1st, maybe it was on January 1st. And when the fellow looked surprised, he said, Look, it says in Psalms that God counts according to the numbers of the nations, which means that even if it's not the Jewish calendar, it still has some measure of significance and some measure of meaning. So, as we find ourselves getting ready for the secular New Year, I want to speak for a moment at the opening of today's class about the concept of New Year's resolutions. Everyone takes them, and how long do they really last? And I don't want to be too cynical, but I'm just saying that you and I know that New Year's resolutions don't always last for the long haul. Oftentimes, we make the resolution, and before long, we find ourselves right back to where we started. In fact, in fact, sometimes it's hard to go even, I don't know, even a few weeks or a few months or a month even without, um, without perhaps lapsing back into our prior patterns, into the status quo. So the point is that it's, that it's hard. We all take resolutions. And resolutions are um, a good thing to make and to take. Nonetheless, the question is, why do they so often fail? What is it about resolutions and the process of, take, of making a resolution that so often doesn't lead to any lasting result? And there are many answers that, that, that have been given. There are many answers. There are many approaches that we could take in our own lives. But I want you to keep this in mind. I'm not going to answer the question right now. But in the course of today's discussion, I want, I'm going to, at the end, I'm going to circle back to this point, the idea of how to make a resolution and stick with it. And by the way, the answer is not, well, this time for sure. This time, I'm definitely going to stick to it. That's like Charlie Brown. You know what I'm talking about with Charlie Brown? With the football? Yes? Yeah, it's like this time, I'm definitely going to kick it, and for sure, and, and it's not going to be a trick, and they're not going to you know, get one over me this time. This time it's going to work. Well, that's not going to be the effective solution that we're going to talk about. It's not, it's not, well, this year is different because I just said it is. <laughs> that's, not why, that's not how it's going to change. We'll speak today, hopefully, about a few different, few effective Torah-based approaches to effective resolution-making and effective, really, action doing, although that's a little bit redundant, but how to effectively commit ourselves and execute what it is that we've committed, that will be in the room, in the, in the periphery, in the, we're going to touch on that in the, in the class, and then at the end, I'm going to hopefully tie everything together with a nice little ribbon, gift-wrapped, oh, sorry, Hanukkah already was, whatever, gift-wrapped with a bow so that you can uh, put it under 
your um, Hanukkah menorahs. Now, let's jump into let's jump into today's topic. All right, I'm treading dangerous territory here with the uh, with the gift analogy. So let's talk about today's topic, which is tears. And we need to know this: we're in the middle of the Joseph story in the Torah portion. We're actually toward the end of the Joseph story, and I'm just going to do a very quick, like I don't know, 30 second recap. Joseph sold by his brothers as a slave, ends up, ends up in Egypt, working for Potiphar, thrown into prison, ends up interpreting Pharaoh's dreams, becomes viceroy, big man on campus over there in Egypt. Brothers come down to buy grain because Canaan, land of Israel, is out of food, and Joseph recognizes them. They don't recognize him. He puts them through the ringer, orchestrates all sorts of things for them to bring down their youngest brother, Benjamin, Finally, after framing them and him, Benjamin, for a crime he didn't commit, finally Joseph reveals his true self, his true colors, no, his true identity to his brothers, and that happens at the beginning of Vayigash, this week's Torah portion. By the way, I probably should have said spoiler alert, but I imagine you probably know the story by now, but it's important that we're all on the same page. So, in the context of this reunion between the brothers and Joseph, the Torah tells us an interesting Prat, an interesting detail. What is the interesting detail? I'm glad you asked. I'm going to pull it up on my screen, and we are going to study it together. Hold on. Give me a moment. PDF will be shared right now. All right, here we go. Let me make this larger so we all can see. Donna. Donna. Yogi Donna. If you don't mind. Hey, if you don't mind, please read text one. This is Genesis 45, 14. Joseph fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept on his neck. All right, it was so fast I didn't even have a chance to take a sip of my uh, my LaCroix, my seltzer. All right, but let's, okay, but let's, so let me just <laughs> jump into that one. What happens? So, you know there were 12 brothers, right? Jacob had 12 sons from four different mothers. There were two that came from the same mother, Rachel. And who were these two? Joseph. And Benjamin. And they also hadn't seen each other for 22 years. One second. Yes. Um, are you coming here? Ah, Ellie, come. First of all, Ellie, jump in for a second. You don't want to? Okay. So Ellie Solish, my six-year-old, is asking the question. What? And I'm going to stop sharing for a moment. And his question is, on the Torah portion, he says, Tati, which is dad, why are you calling him Joseph and not Yosef? Aha! Because that's what the English says. You're right. His name was really Yosef. But we call him Joseph just because. It's like Moses. You ever hear of Moses? Right? Not noses. That's something else. <laughs> okay. So, listen. I'm, my, my level of humor is right there. Right in the sweet spot of a, uh, of a six-year-old. So, and you guys know that. All right. So, let's jump back in. So, Joseph. Right? Joseph and Benjamin hadn't seen each other for 22 years. They were the closest of the brothers. I, again, I just want to qualify what I'm saying. Because biologically, they were from the same father and mother. Their mother, Rachel, only had two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. So when all of the brothers reunited, it, there's a special mention of the reunion and the hugging and the kissing and the crying between these two brothers, Joseph and Benjamin. I'm going to share my screen with you one more time because, honestly, I'm not happy with this translation. Sorry, folks. You've heard me say this before. I am not keen on this translation. Okay, for all my Hebraists, and you know who you are, take a look at the Hebrew. I'm going to read the Hebrew. Vayipol al tzavarei v'nyamin, achiv. And he fell 
on tsavare. Tsavare. That means necks, plural. He fell on the necks of Benjamin. Necks, not N-E-X, like it's a cool startup. Like, invest in necks. We're, no, no, no. Necks, like N-E-C-K-S. Like, multiple necks. He fell on the necks of Benjamin, his brother. Vayevkin, he cried. Uvinyamin bocha al-savarav. And Benjamin fell on Joseph's neck, singular. So the first question that comes to mind on a grammatical level is, why in the world does the Torah use the plural when it comes to Benjamin's neck? All right, I'm going to stop sharing and make this very simple. How many necks did Benjamin have? Here's the answer. It's not a trick question. One. So why does the Torah use a plural term when it comes to Benjamin's neck? The Talmud asks, answers the question by giving a non a non-literal um, or a non-intuitive explanation. And, and let's, let's, let me set this up by asking you a question. Get ready on that unmute button. Get your unmute button, trigger it up, get it triggered up. All right, simple question. It's not a trick question, simple question. It's a trick question. No, it's not a trick question, simple question. Why did, simple, simple understanding. Why were they crying on each other's necks? Give me the simple explanation why. Go, unmute please. They're glad to see each other. Glad to see each other. Why crying, though? Glad, good. What else? Oh, cry of joy. Good, overwhelming. Can I just add overwhelming emotion, right? Overwhelmed with emotion. We know there's crying for sad things and crying for happy things. Crying for unbelievable things. This was overwhelming, unbelievable. Joy is amazing. And they were crying. But again, I have that little niggling question, that little like annoying question that I asked, which is why next, plural, which is part of what leads our sages to conclude that it's not so simple. They weren't just crying over not seeing each other for 22 years. There's another agenda to the tears. Shalom, do you know this? Shalom, share with us. Huh? Oh yeah, good. All right, he's got this. All right, let's jump back into the text. Shalom, my 12-year-old. Shalom, come, 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 come. One second, guys. I want to bring Shalom in on this because, Shalom, come. Stop eating. Come. <laughs> All right. Everyone's waiting. Oh, this is Shai. This is not Shalom. Shai, step out for a second. I mean, I love you too. All right, Shalom. Sh no, come in. Tam Tam. Come in. Come in. Say hi. I just want to point out, folks, this is Shalom. All right. If he's not going to come in, I'm just turn the screen. That's Shalom. Shalom's 12. Set, set your calendar dates. November 2021. Mir Sashem, please God, will be his bar mitzvah. And hopefully we'll be already vaccinated and microchipped, whatever we need. Whatever, I'm kidding, joking about that last part. Whatever we need so that we can get back in a healthy fashion. All right. Oh, speaking of vaccines, I have to mention this. Breaking news. Listen, this class you're going to have to help cup because I'm going to skip around a little bit in my stream of consciousness. Um, we're going to be breaking, breaking announcement in the next week or so, next few days, several days, about an event coming up, um, Jewish bioethics. Jewish bioethics, a conversation about COVID and vaccines and CRISPR and genetic modification and all of this cutting edge, literally cutting edge technology in medicine from a Jewish legal and ethical perspective. Stay tuned. This will be epic. Back to our class. All right, so the Talmud says the reason why they crowded each other's necks, remember that question? Like a few minutes ago? The reason is 
David's in. The reason is for the following for the following rationale. Let's go. Text number two. Ray, please take it away. Talmud Tractate Megillah. Please share with us the deeper explanation. Don't forget to unmute yourself as you prepare for the reading. Um, Joseph cried over the two temples that were destined to be in Benjamin's tribal territory and were destined to be destroyed. The same verse continued, and Benjamin wept on his neck. Benjamin cried over the tabernacle of Shiloh that was destined to be in the tribal territory of Joseph and was destined to be destroyed. Thank you, Ray. Let me explain, let me explain what's going on here. Joseph cries on the next plural of Benjamin. Why? Because in Benjamin's Israel territory in his land was the heart of the temple. The temple actually straddled the tribe of two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. But it was in Benjamin's tribal territory that the main, the heart, the Holy of Holies and the altar of the temple were found. And in Benjamin's territory, both temples would be destroyed. That's why he cried on his necks, plural, two necks, two temples. He was crying not I haven't seen you in so long, brother. I'm overjoyed. Not only that, but also because of the sorrow. You see that? The sorrow that would befall his brother. His brother would mourn the temple's destruction in his territory. Now, we would all mourn the temple's destruction, but can you imagine Benjamin having it, have, having it, be, having it in their territory and having it destroyed? That was exceptionally, uh, um, exceptionally painful for them. And Joseph was crying in empathy for Benjamin's future loss of those two temples. And Benjamin wept on Joseph's neck. Why? Because it was in Joseph's tribal territory, in his piece of land in Israel, that years prior to the temple, the holy temple in Jerusalem, years prior to that, the, temp the temporary tabernacle of Shiloh, or Shiloh would be destroyed by the Philistines. And again, that was actually first, that was destroyed, and then it was rebuilt, and then the, the temple was built in Jerusalem, and then those two temples were destroyed. Each was crying over the other's loss. I'm going to stop sharing because I need to look at you all and just check in. Does this make sense? Yes? Yes? Okay. In other words, the simple, thank you, the simple explanation is they were crying tears of joy. The Talmudic explanation is they were crying tears of sorrow. Oh, hey, Ellie Solish. Um, yes. They were crying tears of sorrow. Why sorrow? Over empathy, uh, empathy over the other's loss. Joseph for Benjamin's two losses of the temple and Benjamin for Joseph's loss of the Mishkan of the tabernacle. Okay. That is so far, so far, so good. So we have a verse. Well, we have a reunion and a verse that talks about the reunion, talks about necks, and tears, and we've explained that simply it means tears of joy on a deeper level, tears of anguish, tears of empathy, tears of sorrow for the loss that would befall the other brother. Which means, by the way, that as they had this reunion, they were filled with a prophetic spirit. Let me just fill in the gaps of this, of this narrative. right? They were filled with a prophetic spirit, and they were able to see... One second... Mute everybody here so we have a nice clean background. And they were filled with the prophetic spirit and became aware of the future occurrences that would happen in each of the other's territories in their respective 
plots of land in Israel. Again, this would happen. This would, this would take place many, many, many hundreds and hundreds of years later after this moment, after this embrace. But yet they were filled with that sense of, that sense of, of, of vision and foresight to be able to, to see that and to cry about that. Okay, so we have, so, so far so good. I'm going to ask you a simple question. And you might think it's not a question, because what kind of question is it? But it's a question, especially when you have a good answer, you're allowed to ask the question. Here's my question. Why did they specifically, well, why does the Torah specify that they fell on each other's necks? Why does the Torah tell us about the neck? Who cares which part of the body? The point is that they cried. And if, you, if the whole idea is that they cried for the other, okay, so the main thing is the tears. Why do we need to know the location of where their each respective head was located on the other person's body? Understand my question? Yes? Why is necks important? Let's explore. Um, there is a classic connection between the Holy Temple and the neck. And... You might wonder, like, what, what I'm, like, what's the connection between the temple and the neck? I'm glad you asked. Take a look at text number. Hold on. Take a look at text number. Should be text number three. Let me pull this up once again in our PDF. Oh, oh, folks, we have a map. Take a look. That's cool. Take a look at the map. All right. Shiloh or Shiloh is right here with where my little hand is. Can you guys see that? Can you guys see my hand? Whoop, right down there. Yeah, you see that? It's in Ephraim's territory. Ephraim was um, Joseph. Ephraim was one of the sons of Joseph. So that's Joseph's territory. And Jerusalem, you see Jerusalem right there with the star, is in Benjamin's territory. Boom, so Joseph and Benjamin, and each one was crying over the other one's loss. All right, now let's take a look at the connection between, so we asked, after that I asked the question, What's with the neck? Why does the Torah specify that it happened with the neck? So the answer, the approach that we're going to take is that the neck is a euphemism for the temple because the temple is associated with the neck. Why? Let's take, or how do we see this? Text 3. Um, Paul, please read text 3 from the Midrash. Please unmute yourself. Yeah, you got it. What is the meaning of the verse, your neck is as the Tower of David? The temple is situated at the world's peak. Just as the human neck is at the high point of a person's body. Perfect, thank you. So what the, what the Medrash says, and by the way, this is on Shir Shirim, Song of Songs, chapter 4, verse 4. So the verse says there in Song of Songs, penned by King Solomon, your neck is as the Tower of David. So romantic, you know, Song of Songs is a, is a, uh, is a love story. Your neck is as the Tower of David. So, but the Medrash says, our sages tell us, that that's a reference to the holy temple. Just like the just like the neck is at the top of the body, so to the temple is at the top of the world. Now I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. Uh, Mount Everest is higher than the Temple Mount. Yeah, 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 of course. It's not like we're not measuring like feet or or miles. We're measuring spiritual heights, right? The the temple is at the height of the world. It's the spiritually highest place. It's, it's, also, it's also located on a mountain, but it's so uh, physically it's also somewhat representative, uh, represented by being in a high space, but it's more conceptually, it's at the highest place of the world, just like the neck. However, however, you should know, even on the Temple Mount, they didn't build a temple at the top of the mountain. They built it a little bit lower, because you're probably thinking, since when is the neck at the top of the body? 
Did anyone think that, by the way? You could be honest. Did anyone think, wait, 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 wait. I've seen a human being before. I, oh, we actually see each other now. I've seen people, and I know the neck is not the top, right? There's something higher than the neck. This is called investigative thought, right? There's something higher than the neck. What's higher than the neck, by the way? Ah, Ellie's got it, right? This is Torah for six-year-olds. The head is higher than the neck, right? So what's, what are we saying that just like the neck is at the top of the body, so too the temple is at the top of the world? Wow. It seems like we like swung and missed on that analogy. It's like it's literally not the top of the body, and it's li like literally it's, it's right below. Like how did we miss that? Our sages didn't know. They never saw anybody before. Like they never, like had no idea what people look like. What's going on here? It's intentional, obviously, you, I mean, I'm sure you know it's intentional, but we're going to explore what that means. Let's get back to the text, and let's continue. Let's roll forward with this, because we are putting together quite, quite the elegant puzzle. Mike Carter, please read text number four from Rashi. The Holy Temple was built on the high point of Benjamin's land, except that it was 23 cubits below the Atem wall. Yeah. Well. Well. David intended to build it there at the Atim well. However, they said to David, let us build it a little lower. For scripture states in Moshe's blessing to the tribe of Benjamin about God dwelling in their territory. And he dwells between his shoulders, which are lower than they. So let me explain what's going on here. There's a verse that says, Uvenk sefav shachain, that God dwells between his shoulders, referring to the the the, the the territory of Benjamin's shoulders, like the neck, are not at the top of the head. So basically, here's the point. When they built the Holy Temple, they built it not at the top of the mountain, not at the top of the Temple Mount. They built it a little bit below. Why? Sh neck and shoulder height. Which means that although the Temple is allegedly at the top, it's not exactly the top. It's kind of a little bit lower than the top. It's more neck level. And that's by design. Why? Here we go. This is the Kabbalah of the neck. The Kabbalah of the neck is as follows. What is the function of a neck? And again, this may not be a medical analysis of it, but it's a conceptual analysis of it. So my apologies to all the doctors out there that are going to say, well, I'll tell you, you know, we got other things that we're missing. It's fine. But we're going to look at the concept of what a neck does. And to understand the neck, let's understand what a head and a torso is. You with me on that? This is, all, trust me, this is all gonna come together very, very beautifully. Let's talk about first the head, right? What's in the head? Let's go. What's, what does the head house? The, the brain. The brain. And what does the torso house? What does the chest house? The heart, the lungs, right? I mean, major organs, like vital, vital organs. The brain is a vital organ. The heart is a vital organ. Let me ask you a question. Hypothetical question. For life to exist, human life, to exist biologically, uh, does the head and the heart or the head and the lungs, do they all need to be connected? Yay or nay? Yeah? That's what the neck is. Again, Biologically, we may have other, other items, but I think even biologically this is true. The neck houses at least part of where the spinal cord is, what connects, right? And the nerves and whatever it is that, can, that connects the head, the brain, with the rest of the body. Which means, you're ready for some Kabbalah of the neck. What is the neck? The neck is 
the bridge. Right? The whole world is a bridge, but the neck is also a bridge. And what kind of bridge is the neck? It's the bridge between the consciousness and the functions of the body. In other words, it makes you and I move. It makes us be. It takes the theory of life and connects it to the practice of life. Are you with me on that? A head without a body can't do much, right? Has all the brain power, but no execution, right? And the body without the head has all the power of execution, but no guidance. Yeah, so you need the head, you need the torso, and you need the connection. One might say, yesh lomar, one might say that the neck is the most important, right? Obviously, you need the other two pieces, but the, without the bridge, you have garnished, you got nothing. You with me so far? Yeah, hence the temple is called the neck. That's the connection between temple and the neck. Why? Because the temple, see, you and I would have thought that the temple is the head, right? The temple is the head. It's not the head. It's not at the top of the mountain. We know now it's a little bit lower. It's the neck. Why? Because the purpose of the temple was not to go and escape to the loftiest heights, to this most spiritual place, the top of the world. At the top of the Himalayan mountains, there's a thing where you can go and meditate and levitate, and that's the holy temple. No, that's in other religions, other philosophies. That's their height, right? That's, that's the ultimate. In Judaism, the temple is not a head, it's a neck. It's a, yes, it is spiritual, but it's all about connecting the inspiration to the implementation. It's connecting theory to action, spirit to matter, right? Heaven, connecting it to earth. Are you with me on what I'm saying? Yes, is what I'm saying make sense? Yes, 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 okay. The temple, the Beit HaMikdash, the holiest Jewish space was not functioning as a head, it was functioning as a neck. It wasn't intended to be a lofty, theoretical, holy space. It was holy, but its function was to transmit that holiness to the world, to be the neck that connects God with the world, spirit with matter, holiness to the mundane. Which is why, text three, we had a verse from Song of Songs, and the measure says, now what does it mean your neck is like the Tower of David? It's the temple. The temple is a neck. And we said, that God dwelled not in the head of Benjamin, but on the shoulders, the neck, the, the neck level, because again, it's all about the neck. Let's get back to our story. Our story, of course, pertains to the reunion of Joseph and Benjamin. And maybe you know already where this is going. But actually, hold on. Before that, before that, before that, take a look. Oh, beautiful text. Take a look at text number five. You're going to love this one. Take a look at text five. Here's some divine, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Divine architecture. Um, Sarah Carter, please read text number five from the book of Kings. And King Solomon made for the house windows broad without and narrow within. Thank you. King Solomon, when he built the temple designed by David, and God built by King Solomon, his son, when King Solomon built the temple, the holy temple in Jerusalem, yeah, in Benjamin's territory, the aforementioned temple, 
when he built that first temple, he built the windows. The, the walls were thick. He built the windows in the wall. They were just cut out holes in the wall. They were narrow, sorry, um, narrow inside and wide outside. And that flies against the grain of all other windows created in that time. Use, it, it would make sense. You have a narrow opening, a little bit more narrow outside, and broader inside to, to maximize your light. Okay, folks, I need to explain something. You couldn't just make a hole in the wall and call it a window. You know why? This is before glass, or at least before they had, at least our understanding is before they had, you know, covered windows. And you didn't want to have a massive hole where animals or intruders could get in. So you needed to have a narrow, some sort of narrow thing where an animal couldn't jump in. So typically the windows would be narrow on the outside to prevent intruders. And wider on the inside, it would, it would kind of like angle in the, in the depth of the wall. It would angle wider, broader on the inside to maximize the intake of light. Are you with me? Yes. But in the temple, it was the opposite. It was narrow inside and broad outside. Why? Kabbalah says, because the whole purpose of the temple was to emanate light to the outside. It was all about taking the light and being a neck, sharing it with the world, connecting it, plugging it in. Think of a neck, by the way, as a plug, right? Let's say you have data on your phone. You want to move it to your computer. You, gotta, you need a wire to connect your phone to your computer to transfer the information. That's what the neck is. That's what the temple is. The temple is not the head. It's the neck. It's the source that connects. It's, it's the connection between the source and the rest of the world. Let's take a look at how the Rebbe explains it. The Rebbe explains it so beautifully. Take a look at the, uh, at the language of the Sicha, of the talk that we are basing tonight's class on. I'm going to read this one, text number six. The holy temple's function is to fill the entire world with godly light, including the most mundane and unholy places. For this reason, the temple was at, a, was at a high point of the world, but still not too high and detached from it. For, for it to illuminate the world, the temple had to be lowered to the place it was meant to impact, just like the neck. The bridge between the head and body needs to be near the torso to connect it with the elevated brain, making them one. The same holds true for the mini temple found inside all of us. When our godly soul is not aloof and removed from our little world, rather it is involved and integrated with the body, then we can rectify and sublimate ourselves and our surroundings, making them a temple and a dwelling for God's presence. So, again, the temple of old, the ancient holy temple, was all about connection between spirit and matter, between heaven and earth, between God and the world. That's why it was situated not at the top, at the top of the mountain, because then that would indicate that it's it's, it's, it's too lofty, it's, it's disconnected, it's out of touch. No, 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 it was, it was down a little bit on the mountain. It was lowered down to indicate its function, of, uh, uh, its function as a neck, as a point of connection between the world. And the Rebbe says this is true in our own lives, that our lives should be filled with this recognition that our job is to connect the spiritual brain with the, the mundane body, in other words, the spirit, with the matter, the theory, with the practice, to connect heaven with earth. So far make sense? Wait, yes, Susan, go ahead. Second. But can you extend that metaphor with the windows to the part about the person? In other words, I see the extension about the neck and the temple to the neck and the human being. 
But text five about the windows, that's been inserted in here between text three and four right. and then six. But it doesn't, text six hasn't extended the metaphor about the window. So the way, yeah, ex excellent point, excellent point. So the way we're understanding, the way we're fitting the window into, this, uh, into the structure of this class, all puns intended, mm -hmm. is that um, the window indicates that the temple's purpose was not to be a self-contained light environment. In other words, if the temple, if the, if, if the Jewish temple was meant to be like many other temples, a place where you go to bask in the rays of divinity and to, and to, and to remove yourself and to, to, to go on top of the mountain, to go into that headspace, if that's what it was, then it wouldn't have windows that were flowing outward. It wouldn't be about the outward flow. It would be about containing everything within. It would be about actually closing off any outside leakage of the energy and keeping everything, keeping all the light concentrated inside, that would be the, uh, the most spiritual environment to be in. But that wasn't the, t the role of the temple. The role of the temple was to be a neck, was to connect the light inside to the world outside. And that's why embedded in the structure and the architecture of the temple was its function. And that's why the windows were, and was the architecture expresses the purpose of it, which is to connect its energy with the world. So that transforms it from being a place of, let's just call it selfish spiritual indulgence. And I don't mean selfish in a negative way. I just mean mm -hmm. self-contained spiritual indulgence to being one of, with the intention to, to bridge it. Okay, yeah, listen, we, we could have done it without that text, but I thought it was, it was not, it's, I mean, it's in the class, and I thought it was nice to mention yes, because important. you do see it in the architecture. Now, so let's circle back to the story because we're still trying, to, we're still analyzing the story between Joseph and Benjamin, the reunion, and, they f and, and the Torah tells us not just that they cried, but they fell on each other's necks. And we said, based on the Talmud, that that means that they were thinking about the other's temple that was going to be destroyed in, their, in the other's um, uh, um, uh, land. Okay, so now we understand what that means on a deeper level. Why mention neck? They were crying about the, the churban, about the destruction. One was crying for the temples, one was crying for the, for the tabernacle. Good, why do you need, the, I asked before, why, why do you need to mention that it was the neck? Uh -huh. Well, number one, because neck means temple. So when the, when the Torah tells us they were crying on the necks, oh, I know what the neck is, the neck equals temple. That's a deeper insight, that's a window into the fact that we're talking about a deeper crying, tears of sorrow and not just tears of joy. Are you with me on what I just said? Again, the simple explanation is they cried tears of joy. The deeper explanation is they cried tears of sorrow and empathy. How do we know that? I already I, I told you that it says next plural when it comes to Benjamin, but, I, but also the fact that it said neck in the first place indicates that there was a temple connection because the temple is, is, is referred to euphemistically as the neck. So that's an indication. Plus, why was the temple destroyed? Because we collectively as a people weren't heeding its message. We weren't connecting the theory with the practice, right? As, as Jewish history unfolded, as a nation collectively, we dropped the ball and we stopped making the, the neck connection, the bridge between the purpose and the execution and the, and the, and the actual fulfillment of what we needed to do. Like we knew what we needed to do. Yeah, I, I, we know what Judaism says. But were we actually implementing it in our lives, in the world? And the answer is not as much as we should. And that is, at least on the ground, the reason for why the temple is destroyed. So they're crying on each other's necks about the temple, which is called the neck, that was destroyed in each of their respective territories. And they're crying because 
at some point later on, their children would forget about the message of the neck. They would forget the whole purpose of life. The whole purpose of the temple is to make it real, to integrate it, to, to neck, to connect, to connect, make that connection. Make sense? Okay, good. So we could, we could theoretically close out the class, but you know we're not going to do that right now. Who, who does that? It's, uh, it's way too early for that because we have another point of analysis, another major point of analysis. And that is, and that is, why did they cry about the other's sorrow and not their own? If they were filled with prophecy, you would think that the prophetic vision would extend not just to the other's pain, to the other's loss, but to their own as well. So why didn't Benjamin cry for his own loss, future loss? And why didn't Joseph cry for his future loss? Why did they cry on each other's necks for each other's sorrow? Now, you're going to say, empathy. What a beautiful trait. What a beautiful thing. They were crying for the other. That's true love. All right. True. True empathy is good and empathy is valued. And this story has a lot of empathy. This, these tears represent feeling the other one's pain, which is a wonderful virtue. Nothing wrong with that. And I 100% I agree with it. In fact, I literally just said it. So I definitely agree with it. However, however, there is also value in crying for oneself, you would think. There's also value in acknowledging your own loss and crying and, and feeling the, the loss that would, I mean, again, it's, it's, we're talking about prophecies of the future, but feeling one's future loss and, and, and having that strike a chord inside and, and being filled with tears. In fact, we're going to look at some verses on the value of, of, of tears, of crying. Take a look at the next text that I'm going to share with you. We're going to skip a text, by the way. Um, don't worry, I'm going to come back to it a little bit later. We're going to go text 8a. What a powerful text over here. Um, one second. Is there some fire on or no? No. Okay. Um, let's ask Donna. Donna Herbert, please read text 8A from the book of Psalms. Okay. My tears were bred for me day and night when they say to me all day long, where is your God? Thank you. So Psalms penned by King David. He says, my tears were bred for me day and night. My tears were bred for me day and night. What does that mean, my tears were bred for me? Um, take a look at text AB. Donna, please continue one more text. Text AB. Here's Rashi on Psalms. My tears were bred for me. From here we derive the distress satiates a person, and he does not seek to eat. Similarly, Scripture states regarding Hannah, and she wept and did not eat. Thank you. Now, that's actually a powerful commentary and quite um, jarring. Yeah, King David says, my tears were bread for me, and, and Rashi explains, what does it mean by bread? Bread meaning sustenance, because when one is sad, when one is crying, the appetite goes away also. So it's kind of like the tears satiate the person, and, and, and eliminate the hunger. That is not a very happy commentary, right? That's not a happy commentary. That's a very um, stark, um, I mean, it's, it's real, but it's basically saying that sadness 
can lead to a person not eating because they're in such pain and sorrow and sadness. That's one explanation. But I want to share with you now a deeper explanation. This is coming from Kabbalah, from uh, Hasidic philosophy, Chabad Hasidus, from the Tzema Tzedek. Um, take a look at text number nine. Fred, please read text number nine. Uh, the first two paragraphs, please. To explain why crying is slight, slightly lessens one's pain and hunger, when you're in tears, you may come to realize that God hears your cry and will surely bring you salvation. Because as the Talmud teaches, even as the gates of prayer are locked, the gates of tears remain open. For this reason, tears can be satiated. When a person is confident that his desire will be fulfilled, it is like bread that fills him with content, and he no longer is no longer hungry even for physical food. Thank you, and that's it. We can stop right there because at the last paragraph, he flips back to the simple explanation. But the deeper explanation is that when we cry, then we connect with God, and we're confident that God will help. And that satisfies, if you will, our need. That satisfies our hunger, and that will fulfill, please God, the blessing. So what's the point? The point of all of this is that it seems like there's value on some level with the idea of tears. That crying is something that's, again, the deeper explanation, a part of, of, a part of our spiritual service. So why is it? Circling back to my question that I asked a few moments ago. So why is it that Joseph cries not for his own future loss, but for Benjamin's loss? And why does Benjamin cry not for his own loss, but for Joseph's loss? Why are they crying about each other's sorrow they should cry about their own. They should own their own stuff and cry about their own sorrow. And that's it. Why cry for the other? And I know, I, I, just saying what I said before, I know there's a value in empathy and feeling for another and feeling with another. And that's a beautiful thing. And it is. But why didn't they cry for themselves also? Joseph wept on Benjamin's neck. Necks, plural. Benjamin wept on Joseph's neck. They each wept for each other's neck temple because they didn't do the neck work of connecting spirit and matter. They neglected that and temples were destroyed. They're crying for each other. Why not for themselves? This takes us to the final insight of today. The final insight of today is all about purpose. And really it's going to circle back. Eventually it's going to come back to this idea that I, that I started the class with, which is about New Year's resolutions. Um, and the, the big idea here is, the big idea here is that crying, notwithstanding what we just explained about crying from a place of Kabbalah and crying from a place of, you know, food management, crying doesn't solve problems. Crying does not solve problems. That's the key idea here. This is, as the Rebbe explains it, our Rebbe explains it. Crying does not solve a problem. In fact, it can actually magnify the problem. Why? Because when you cry, after a good cry, you might feel like something's, you might feel better, but nothing actually has changed. Unless it actually changes. You with me on this? Yeah? In other words, crying is taking emotional pain and hitting a release valve to allow the pain to leak out and to be expressed without actually addressing what needs to be addressed. 
So here's the point. I'm not trying to be harsh with tears, but here's, l- l- let me bring it back to this immediate context. The Rebbe explains that for Joseph to cry about Joseph's destruction would be a distraction. If you know there's a destruction going to happen, if you know that there's negativity that needs to be cleaned up, stop crying and do something about it. And Benjamin, if you know about your stuff that needs to be fixed, stop crying about it and address the issue. Fix the problem. When it comes to the other, you and I know we can't fix someone else's problems. We can try to help. You can try to help. Do everything in your power to help them fix the problem. And after we've done everything we can and the problem is still there and there's nothing else that we can do for them because at the end of the day, we're not them, then we cry. We cry because at that point, there's nothing else left to be done. But if it's us, if it's our, if it's our challenge, if it's our pain, the Rebbe says, the Rebbe argues, tears are not always appropriate. Oftentimes, they're, they're inappropriate. Why? Because it's a distraction from taking care of business, fixing what needs to be fixed. And on the contrary, it makes us feel, it makes us, it fools us into thinking that maybe we did change something when we didn't do anything other than cry. Take a look at this powerful text. Take a look at this powerful text from Hayom Yom, the Rebbe's daily calendar insights, spiritual, daily spiritual insights. By the way, if you don't have a copy of Hayom Yom, definitely buy one. You should definitely buy one. It's got a thought for each day of the year, each Hebrew day of the year. It's like, it's like the best calendar you can get. Gives you a daily, daily uh, insight, daily study. It's fantastic. Um, you can get it online. You can get sign up on Chabad.org to get the, cal- the messages sent to your phone or to your email, whatever it is. Either way. Um, but it's highly recommended. Take a look at text 10. Hayom Yom for eight, other two. My revered father, the Rebbe Rashab, writes in one of his letters, one action is better than a thousand sighs. You know what that means, a thousand sighs? Oy, gewald, oy vey. You know what Jewish fetching sounds like, right? Yeah, you, we, we've all done it. Probably a thousand times. One action is better than a thousand sighs. Our God is alive, and the Torah and its mitzvot are eternal. Abandon sighing. Apply yourself diligently to practical action, and God will be gracious to you. In other words, stop kvetching and start acting. Right? Stop kvetching and, and start acting. That should be my new book, Stop Kvetching. Okay, whoops, one second, let me stop sharing so I can see you all. Circling back to our point, the Rebbe says, that is precisely why Joseph does not cry for his own future churban, for his own destruction. You know why? Because if it's my issue, I got to take care of it. There's no time to cry. If, if, if there's negative in my, if, if, I, if I perceive something no good, I have to clean it up. That's it. I have to get down to work. What's this business crying? Again, I'm not trying to sound harsh. I'm just sharing with you this insight. And Benjamin is not crying for his own temple's destruction, both temples being destroyed in his land. 
Do something about it. Get down to work. Now, Benjamin, perceiving Joseph Tsaras, he should cry. Empathy. Because at the end of the day, he can't fix Joseph's problems. He can try to help, but after that, all that's left for him is to empathize and cry with Joseph. And Joseph can empathize and cry with Benjamin. They can't fix each other's stuff, but they can fix their own stuff. And if you can fix it, you and I have no time and no business just leaking emotion, having leaky emotions in the form of tears. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, wow, so you can't cry. You can never cry when you feel some pain. Of course, of course you can, and of course we do. But it's a, it's a concept. It's a, it's a perspective. The perspective. It's a perspective on life. And the perspective is that when, when there's a call to action, when, when there's something in front of us that needs to be done, let's get unstuck from the emotional reactions and from the emotional you know, drama and just get it done. When it comes to someone else, empathize. Here we see an imbalance between how we deal with our own stuff and how we deal with someone else's stuff. When it comes to us, sometimes we have to be brutal with ourselves. No emotion right now. I can't afford it. There's no time. I have to act. When it comes to someone else, don't be brutal. Be empathetic. Be loving. Be kind. Be there fully and emotionally. Don't tell the other person, hey, you need to get... You need to do this and you need to do that. That's not our place. Joseph cried on Benjamin's shoulder for Benjamin's, for, on Benjamin's neck. Sorry, now I'm going to change the narrative. On Benjamin's neck, right, for Benjamin's loss. He didn't start lecturing him. Benjamin, I see what's going to happen. And here's what I think you should do. That's what we do. You see, we flip it around. For the other person, we, we act. We give, them, we give them marching orders. And for ourselves, we cry. You with me on how it's backwards? Because it's easier that way. It's easier to cry for our own stuff and avoid doing the work and start, uh, you know, pontificating for the other person and, and writing them a, a to-do list. It's easier. But it's punt It's exact opposite of what we should be doing. For ourselves, we should act. And for the other, we should cry and empathize. This is the message of the tears that echo throughout history, the tears between Benjamin and Joseph, between these brothers that hadn't seen each other in 22 years. And when they finally reunited, they were filled with a vision. And what was the vision? The vision was each other's sorrow, and they saw their own sorrow, but for their own sorrow, they weren't going to cry. They were committed to doing something about it. But for the other, they felt the pain. They cried on each other's necks because necks represent the temple because the temple is all about connection. Connection between heaven and earth, matter and spirit, holiness and mundane. It's about connecting all of the wonderful ideas and resolutions we might have with the actual days, weeks, months, and, and years that follow. It's about connecting the head of the year with the body of the year. It's connecting the theory and the action. That's what the temple is. That's what Judaism is all about. And that's where we need to act. And it's not about crying. It's about acting. So why do resolutions so often fail? They so often fail because we, we fail to see the steps through connecting the resolution with the day-to-day. -day. This year I'm going to do such and such. And it might be such a wonderful idea that we don't see the, such a big idea that we don't see the practical steps. We need to create the bridge. 
We need to create the bridge or the ladder. Use whatever example, whatever metaphor you like. Create the ladder between intention and action. The bridge between our intention and our actions. So for example, we tell ourselves this year, I'm going to add prayer and Torah study and mitzvahs or whatever, whatever in, in a specific area. Don't make it general. Make it specific. And then create actionable steps. So tomorrow, bottom line, bottom line, tomorrow, what am I going to do differently? When you're making that resolution, the New Year's resolution, don't keep it vague. Don't put the temple on top of the mountain removed from reality. Make the temple real. Make your temple. Make your resolution. Bring it down the mountain a little bit. Make it, make it accessible. Make it doable. Right? Are you with me on this? Make it bridgeable. So what am I going to do? Bottom line. Tomorrow morning, I'm going to wake up, and what's going to be different? And how is it going to happen that it's different? What time am I going to be doing this extra Torah study or prayer or mitzvah? Which, which specific mitzvah am I doing? How am I going to get, remind myself to do it? Do those steps. Work through those steps. Create the bridge. Otherwise, you've taken a temple, which is really beautiful, but you shoved it all the way up in the mountain in the clouds, and it's never, it's never going to hit the ground. It's never actually going to do anything. And that's not what a temple is. A temple is not a head, it's a neck. That's lesson number one with New Year's resolutions. Lesson number two. Lesson number two. Sometimes we get paralyzed by our, by, by our emotions. We get paralyzed by, we feel strongly about something. We feel so strongly about doing something or calling someone or, or that, that we don't even do it because we feel so strongly about it. Do you ever have that experience? Yeah? Feel so strongly about it that you don't actually do it because it's too big. Not exactly on top of the mountain. This is more about it being emotional. We have to exercise that self-control of not allowing our emotions to cloud our actions, not allowing our emotions to get in the way of what needs to be done. Emotions save for the other. When it comes to us, we have to be committed to seeing it through. So friends, this year, as we get ready, Listen, we take every opportunity we can to add in Torah and mitzvot. We take every opportunity. If it takes uh, a, a new digit on our, on our 2000s, no problem. If it takes a secular new year to, 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 to encourage us to, to take a new resolution, 100%. That's totally kosher. may not be the Jewish new year, but it's a time. It's a time to take resolutions. Let's make it happen. So this year, this 2021, right? Let's resolve. Number one. Well, let's make resolutions. And when we make resolutions, let's resolve to making them doable, creating the action steps, thinking about the bridge. How does it actually happen, number one? And number two, pulling, keeping the emotion at, at bay as much as possible. The big emotion, the big drama, push that away and just act. So often... We, we handcuff ourselves with our emotions. And it's, it's all coming from a good place, not a doubt. But we have to know how we work, and we have to know a little life hack, how to work around the things that get in our way. All right, my friends, I hope you enjoyed tonight's class. This is the deeper, this is the Kabbalah of crying, the Kabbalah of tears, the Kabbalah of Joseph and Benjamin. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope it resonated with you. And I'm, I'm, I'm here to take questions and comments um, as you have them. Jump in, folks. 
Just on cue, I'm getting a call from Chicago. He'll call back. It's my son, Nassan. All right. Folks, questions, comments. Hold on. Before I, before I take questions and comments, let me ask you a question. Did we tie everything together? Did everything make sense? Yes? Yes. Good. Good. As long as I have a majority of head nods, yes. and maybe you guys are just being kind, but as long as I have a majority of head nods, then I feel, not eggnog, I said head nods, <laughs> then I feel a little bit more, I feel a little bit more, uh, more confident. Okay, good. What else? Questions, comments, additions, subtractions. Donna. Dr. Maxi. Dr. Maxi. Uh, let's fall. I'm not going to do it on, on collectively. Reach out individually, and I'm going to I'm going to get you the information that you need. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No problem. Bye-bye. Donna. Bye-bye. Yeah. So, as far as taking action, so what about the brothers trying to stop the prophecies? Saying how? Why didn't they do it? Yes. They tried. They tried. They tried. Sometimes. Sometimes. With all the effort in the world, with all of our efforts, sometimes we can't do it. Also, just remember also that these weren't, it was their family and their tribe, but it wasn't the individuals themselves. So they might have committed to teach their kids and to really, you know, do everything in their power to to make sure it transmits to the next generation. But there was a lot of generations between that moment and the temple's destruction. We're talking many, many centuries later. So... Yeah, you're asking, you're asking the pragmatic question, like, so, new, so what happened? After all of this, you know, they felt for the other and they committed themselves to clean up their own backyard and still it was destroyed. Yeah, it still was destroyed. But, yeah, David, go ahead. Yeah, I sent you a, a message. Oh, I didn't see it. It's written Tzavarav. Tzavarav is actually plural. It's like next. So the whole, I mean. Ah. Interesting. Interesting. You're saying, you're saying that even Benjamin and Yosef was also plural. I hear you. Good. Good. So there may, there may be another, another, another addition to that. I don't know, but it's a good, now we need to look that up. It was plural, apparently, on both sides. So now, what does that mean on the other side? Okay? Good? Good point? That's what we like. Listen, it's an opening to find a new, a new angle on it, which is perfect. We're always looking for openings. If everything made sense, if everything was closed, there would be no, no fun in this. <laughs> it's, it's all... all right, we'll, we'll have to explore further. Richard, go ahead. I'm going to comment or question. I understand what you're saying about the crime. Yeah. But I have, a, I have a question. Let's say you are bogged down uh, with some emotional stuff. And the only way you can get forward to take action is to cry. And therefore, the cry is not a, a, an excuse to stand still, but to let go of a past to go to a future. And uh, that's, that's really my comment. In other words, you can't move forward because you've got some of this baggage. And the only way you can re- do it is release by, by crying. Then you put the past baggage behind you, and you can move forward. I'm just saying that's... that's yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. And I think there is a place for that also. And that's why you have to be careful. You know, nothing that I'm saying tonight is, is absolute crying is always bad. It's, it's understanding the concept in that story and, and the context of that story. But look, we quoted from the Tzemach Tzedek, who says that on a spiritual level, tears are bred. In other words, because it does reflect 
a, a, a higher spiritual connection. So yes, there is value even for ourselves sometimes to cry. But as the Rebbe explains it in the Rebbe's context of his explanation, when we use tears as an excuse to make ourselves feel better, well, at least I cried about it, you know, all right, phew, I cried about it, so now I'm okay with it, but nothing changed, that's when we get, we get into danger because not only are we not doing anything about it, but we're convincing ourselves that we did by just releasing that emotion, but really nothing is changing. So, yes, it, it really, it, it's, it, it's more nuanced, it's, or it's nuanced, and we have to understand when, it, when it's kosher and when, it's, uh, and when it might be counterproductive. Right, and also in, in, in the prayer book in, uh, in, in uh, Yom Kippur, tears open the gates of heaven, so yeah. Right, right. So, just to say. 100%. Yeah. And we know, of course, the power of a broken heart. The Kutzka Rebbe said, there's nothing as whole as a broken heart. And the idea, Tanya talks about it extensively, you know, um, self-analysis and self-judgment and, and I mean, in, a, in, a, in introspection and, and, and recognizing one's faults and working on them and Tikkun uh, Chatzot, which is the midnight prayer, which is accompanied with tears. So yeah, there's, there's definitely a positive side to it. But vis-a-vis today's discussion, the message that I want, I want the, the primary message that I want to leave you all with is this idea of being careful when we cry, being careful about indulging in our own tears to make ourselves, if we're making ourselves just feel better, but not actually uh, do the change, do the work that needs to be done. Yeah, but good, bo- both good points. Um, any other questions, comments? Yeah, uh, you once said in a class, I think, Kabbalah, that uh, if you want to cry and you cannot cry, you cannot even cry, it's beautiful. But it's the same. Uh, yeah, yeah. Concept. Yeah, sometimes there's, it's, so, it's so deep that you can't even cry. So deep you can't even cry. And again, there's different, different levels and there's good, te- healthy tears and distracting tears. And it's, it's definitely nuanced. And there's a lot. There's a lot to talk about. A lot to talk about on this on this topic. I mean, a lot, a lot of, a lot of different angles. But yeah, that's there's definitely something about that about being something so deep, so powerful, that you can't even uh, come to a place of tears. Even when it comes to blowing the shofar, we know there are different sounds, and each of the sounds of the shofar corresponds to a to another type of crying. The long blast, the shorter blast, the really short blast, and and there's different forms of of, of feeling that emotion. But I, I, really, I really love tonight's angle, which is moving away from tears. Cry for the other. For you, I'm just going to say it first person. Cry for the other. For me, I, I have work to do. Too, mu- too much work to do than to, than to, to cry. Listen, are we going to cry? We're going to cry. But, and don't feel guilty, but know that that's not the icker. That's not the main thing. The main thing is doing the work that needs to be done. Making that bridge between theory and action, between t- tears and, uh, and, and transformation. We even got alliteration in there. All right. Any other questions, comments? Um, I will mention, I'm going to indulge in my previous announcement and tease it one more time. We have a top, top, and I, I'll say it a third time, top Jewish medical ethicist, doctor, and just... An incredible speaker from New York who will be with us live in January. Details are being wrapped up as we speak. Um, in January, live online. 
um, for this event, Jewish Bioethics 2021, the latest medical breakthroughs, latest medical science, including coronavirus, vaccinations, etc., will be on the table, explored from a Jewish legal and ethical perspective. You do not want to miss this. You can't afford to miss this. It's going to be epic. So that's it. Keep, uh, save the date. All right. The date we're looking at is January 19th. So just do this. Do the old circle on your, on your calendar. Tuesday, January 19th. Save the date. All right. Thank you all for joining. Um, great to see you all. Mom, great to see you. And everyone should be well and healthy and happy and blessed. Take care, everybody. Thank you. Lila Tov. Have a good night. Thank you. Thank you.